Welcome to the Prison Mindfulness Podcast, presented by the Prison Mindfulness Institute. In this podcast, we'll be talking with experts in the fields of prison mindfulness and prison dharma, discussing their transformative work in prisons and jails. Hello, and welcome to another session on the Prison Mindfulness Summit. My name is John McAdams, and I'll be your co-host for this session. Very happy and honored to be here today with Dr. Fleet Ball. Fleet, how are you? Great. Great to see you, John. Good. Well, I'm excited for this conversation. I want to read your bio so folks get a better sense of, of who you are, and then we'll jump right in. Sound good? Great. Fleet Ball, PhD, is an author, meditation teacher, mindset coach, social entrepreneur, and peacemaker who works at the session of personal and social transformation. He founded Prison Mindfulness Institute and National Prison Hospice Association, helping to catalyze two national movements while serving a 14-year mandatory minimum federal drug sentence, 1985 to 1999. He also founded the transformational education platform HeartMind Institute and co-founded the Engaged Mindfulness Institute, where he trains trauma-informed mindfulness teachers who work with individuals and communities impacted by trauma and marginalization. He has served on the leadership team for the annual Auschwitz-Birkenau Bearing Witness Retreat for more than 20 years. He co-founded the Rwanda Bearing Witness Retreat and has trained genocide survivors as volunteer trauma paracounselors working in villages throughout Rwanda. He is a Roshi, a Zen master senior teacher in the Zen peacemaker community, a senior Dharma teacher in the Shambhala Tibetan Buddhist tradition, and leads meditation retreats worldwide. He developed Neurosomatic Mindfulness, or NSM, a deeply embodied neuroscience and trauma-informed approach to mindfulness and awareness meditation practice that facilitates self-healing, self-regulation, and awakening. Dr. Mall is the author of Radical Responsibility, How to Move Beyond Blame, Live Your Highest Purpose, and Become an Unstoppable Force for Good. Dharma in Hell, The Prison Writings of Fleet Mall, and The Resilient CO, Mindfulness-Based Wellness and Resiliency for Corrections Professionals. All right. You've been busy, Fleet, <laughs> in and out of prison. So I think you have uh, just such uh, a depth of experience and perspective to, to speak with us about. So let's start with your background. How did you end up in prison? Yeah, I'll try to give you a real down and dirty version of that. <laughs> So uh, I grew up in the Midwest, uh, middle-class Roman Catholic family, uh, good family, but unfortunately beset with alcoholism. So I came of age in the 60s, a big hole in my gut, angry, classic angry young man, went headlong into the counterculture of that time, you know, all the craziness, the anti-war politics, the drug, sex, and rock and roll, and drug experimentation. Went through the whole psychedelic era really deeply, and then went into hard drugs and uh, just really deeply into that world and really wanted to get away from that when it's the darker that scene got. And I uh, also was just feeling really alienated within the culture I was in, had been for a long time. And when Richard Nixon was reelected in 72, was, I just felt like I had to get out. So, and I was also just looking for something authentic. I, you know, I earlier in my life, I felt very plugged into a, a vivid magical world, but it disappeared around the time I started school, I guess. And, and I all went to gray tone. So I was always seeking something real and, and, uh, you know, thought was well, starting to find inklings of that in the drugs and the music, but you know, that's kind of a mirage. And if you have a propensity to addiction or a hole in your gut, like I did, that takes you down some pretty 
twisted roads. So, so I left the country and became an expat traveling in Central and South America and really as a seeker. Uh, the drug thing went into the background a bit. It didn't disappear altogether, but it was mainly about spiritual seeking and about uh, just, you know, adventure and really exploring indigenous cultures and the archaeological history. And and I ended up living in, in Peru, mostly. Uh, I traveled all over Central and South America, but ended up living in Peru, way up in the Andes Mountains. And it was an incredibly magical place. I did find a, a really magical world to plug back into. Unfortunately, the first time I came back, I realized it was still environmental. I couldn't bring it back with me. I hadn't been able to internalize it. Uh, and I went back, lived down there, and I eventually ran out of money and fell into small time, you know, drug smuggling. Originally, just drug trafficking, making connections for other people that were coming down to smuggle cocaine. And, and I, you know, make a few thousand dollars. I could live another six months down there on that. Uh, but then I actually got into smuggling myself. And um, can justified it with all this us versus them thinking, you know, the world is all hypocritical and, you know, feeling that sense of, of uh, self-justification and um, uh, eventually came back to the States to uh, get my master's degree at Naropa University, then Naropa Institute, became a student of Chogum Trungpa Rinpoche. And, uh, and that's what I was looking for. I went to Naropa looking for a practice. I started practicing on my own in South America, had gotten into studying and trying to practice on my own in Tibetan Buddhist tradition, but not getting very far without a teacher or a Sangha. And so I came looking for that. And I found that by coming to Naropa. Uh, but I still had all this shadow stuff in the background. And uh, that continued. I kept it a secret from my teacher, from the community. Before I could untangle all that, I ended up uh, with a long federal prison sentence. And uh, so, you know, I ended up doing all that time. But, you know, the, the good fortune was I came in there with a lot of skills and a lot of training in the Buddhist tradition and also having completed a three year clinical training program in Buddhist and Western psychology. And I was also just completely shocked and devastated by realizing what I'd done to my son, who was nine years old at the time. He was now going to grow up without a dad. And, uh, you know, I had a no parole sentence because I was convicted on this so-called kingpin statute. And, um, you know, originally I, I originally it was 30 years, no parole. And on appeal, they knocked up five years, uh, came down to 25. But fortunately, I was sentenced under the old law and you got a lot of good time if you stayed out of trouble. So I would have served 18 and a half on 30. I ended up serving the 14 and a half on on the 25 by staying out of trouble. Sadly, now people who get those sentences, they might get like two years good time. Everything changed after 1987. But at any rate, I did serve 14 and a half years. But I was radically dedicated to turning my life around when I got there because I was just devastated over what I'd done to my son and his mother, how I torched my own life, um, you know, which I thought was pretty much over, uh, how I'd let down my community, my teacher, uh, you know, my uh, family, uh, you know, and it took a it took a couple you know while sitting in twelve step groups uh, and really listening to one person after one man after it was a male prison one man after another talking about how their lives had unraveled after drugs. To really even then confront all the harm I'd been involved in, how what a harmful activity I'd been involved in and the harm it had brought to so many lives. So all that just fueled this passionate desire to, to turn my life around and hopefully do some good to leave a better legacy for my son than just that his dad went to prison or even that his dad died in prison because I had no surety that I would survive that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you for that. It sounds like what you're saying is it took a couple of years for, for this to land, but it sounds like you really adopted some accountability, some responsibility for all of these past actions. 
And now we've got another 12 years. So what was that journey like? Mm -hmm. Well, the first part of it all landed right up the, right from the get go. You know, it was a minute I landed in county jail. The minute I got sentenced, you know, I was I knew what was up and I just started practicing like my hair was on fire, even during the seven months of going through trial and sentencing. So, you know, everything had completely turned around when I when I got locked up. But it was that part of really, you know, I still have some internal justifications about having been involved in, you know, the drug, even though I knew I'd created a lot of harm to my son. And, you know, it was still, you know, like, well, it wasn't as bad as this or it wasn't as bad as that. Or, you know, back then it was a recreational. Everybody was doing it. So it was sitting in those 12 step meetings. I don't think it took two years. It probably took a year that I really even had to face it at next level. It was more like facing the next level of the harm I'd created. And I just developed this passion and longing to, to begin with to not cause any more harm, to just not cause any more harm. And then, of course, along with that, maybe to do some good. Um, but, yeah, that was that was kind of the transition. Mm -hmm. So so what was that? What did you do? Well, you know, I just really focused on practice. The minute I got there, you know, it was a relief to get to this big federal prison. I was in a hellhole of a county jail for seven months. And to get to this big prison where you could, I could get a job and there was a, there was a prison yard you could walk on. There was a recreation area. It was a big place with 10 buildings all connected with these underground tunnels or a half underground, half above ground. So you never really had to go outside to get from one place to another. It was all controlled movement. So you could only move, you know, uh, like on the hour for 10 minutes. And, you, and if it wasn't, if it wasn't during free time, you always had to have a pass wherever you're going. If it was during normal work hours, um, but it was, a, you know, it was a maximum security prison, but it was a federal prison hospital. And, uh, you know, when I got there, um, I was really full of the drama of my own situation, as you might imagine, just been sentenced to 30 years with no parole. And uh, but when I got there and was confronted with that place, it just completely shook me out of that self-preoccupation. Because I remember the first day of walking the halls there, I felt like I was in some kind of Fellini movie of suffering. You know, there were there were men doing the, the you know, the Thor scene, how it all two step down, down the hall, coming out of the psych ward, uh, people out on the, you know, on the, on the yard, you know, talking to themselves. There were, there were people being led around who were blind, you know, being helped around in prison who were completely blind. There were men being wheeled around who were emaciated from cancer and AIDS. There were men being wheeled around in wheelchairs who were paraplegic or quadriplegic. I mean, it was just like so much suffering. And so that just completely woke me up. And the influence of my teacher, Trunk Rimshe, who, as far as I could tell, lived 24-7 in service of humanity, that and the influence of good parts of my, of my family of origin as well kicked in. And, and I realized I just needed to show up here and figure out how I could serve. So I got a job teaching school, which I did as my day job for 14 years. And that led, you know, eventually I was able to get a meditation group started in a prison chapel. I got very involved in the 12-step work, was a, kind of a leader in that for 14 years. And then... Uh, you know, a couple of years in with another prisoner, uh, I was able to help start their first hospice program inside a prison and did that was a big part of my life for the last 11 years of my time there. A lot, most of my meal breaks and my free time were spent up in the hospital uh, taking care of men who were dying of cancer, AIDS, liver disease and so forth. So your heart grew. Yeah, definitely. My heart grew a lot. And, uh, you know, I became I just led this very disciplined life. I, I actually took monastic vows uh, with uh, Trangarum Shea, uh, that, you know, it was a couple of years in, but, uh, you know, I was, I was trying to figure out how I could live my life, uh, you know, kind of as a prison monk. And so I led this very disciplined life. I, I didn't sleep very much. I got up very early in the morning to practice. Um, and, uh, then I went to work and, and, you know, I, I, you know, so, uh, and then coming home, you had to be back on your unit at nine o'clock at night. 
And so then I studied for a couple hours and I practiced for a couple hours. And uh, so, you know, I was practicing two, three, four hours a day uh, and I was studying two or three hours a day and, uh, you know, living a life of service and probably sleeping for the first six, seven years. I don't know how I did. I was only sleeping like four or five hours. And I was completing my Nundural practices, the preliminary practices in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, which I had managed to complete before I went to prison because of my crazy lifestyle. And, uh, you know, it took me two years to get a, a single cell. I was in these big dormitories. But once I got a single cell, I could start doing prostrations and go through all the Nundro. So I got up, you know, really early every morning, like three or four in the morning and uh, to do my Nundro practice. And so I was just driven. You know, I was a uh, I was driven by, and you know, my my teacher from Primche died in 1987, two years into my time. So I was full of remorse and longing, and regret, and you know, devastation over what I'd done to my son, and and you know, I just I just was on fire with with you know this compulsion to practice and and be disciplined. And I also it was really clear to me from the beginning when I got there that anything. I'd be able to do there that was of value in that place. It was going to not come out of my head. It was going to come out of my practice. If I just practiced, things would evolve. And so really the, everything I was able to do there over those 14 years uh, with the meditation group, uh, with the hospice work, with the 12 step work, with all the other things, lots of programs we developed, it really all arose out of my practice. And people were, I think magnetized because they recognized the, the, the discipline that I, that I, you know, that I led such a discipline. They may not have understood what I was doing, but they saw that I was really committed and really serious about that. And in general, in the, in the prison environment, which is a completely crazy environment, this was an incredibly negative place. Um, you know, on a good day, maybe you only had six or seven really demeaning encounters with either your fellow prisoners or with the correctional staff. You know, I, I, I just realized that, that, you know, if if I really dedicated myself to practice, you know, things could happen, and uh, and that could become a transformative environment for for me, which it which it did. It was it was really my my monastery time, my ashram time, or whatever for those fourteen years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So at this point, very steeped in the Dharma, very steeped in practice, and this um, this creation that came about the prison Dharma. Network, this nonprofit that you started there in prison. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it started fairly early on. Um, you know, I, I ran a Bo Lawsoff's book, Doing Time, early on when I was in prison. And we have Sita Lawsoff on our summit here. I'm very happy for that. And, uh, you know, Bo and Sita started, you know, they're kind of the, the grandparents, if you will, the, the elders of, of uh, prison meditation work. They took over. Uh, Ram Dass's prison correspondence and started a prison ashram project that became the Human Kindness Foundation. So I ran into an early version of, of, of Bo's book, We're All Doing Time, and was very impressed with that. And, uh, and you know, I felt like there was a need for an organization that was supporting prisoners interested in Buddhism and meditation, uh, in particular Buddhism, med- Buddhist meditation, and, uh, and also outside volunteers. And uh, so I started, I called it Prison Dharma Network, kind of inspired by Prison Ashram Project, and um, got you know raised a little money from family and friends, a couple thousand dollars, and got a you know did all the paperwork through a, through somebody on the outside. Uh, actually, uh, you know I started this group in prison, and one of the guys that was coming to the group when we first got it started uh, was uh, from Nepal and of uh, of kind of. Um, uh, Tibetan Buddhist family in Tibet, even Nepalese, but of, of the kind of the Sherpa uh, families that were Tibetan Buddhist. And 
And so he didn't have a lot of experience with practice, but he grew up in a family that honored that. And the family had a llama and all of that. So he was coming to the group and his brother was in another prison and his brother had a girlfriend or something on the outside and she was willing to help us. So she became like the mail drop. I was mailing all the, 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 she would mail forms to me. I'd fill them out. I'd mail them back to her. And then she became the initial volunteer doing prisoner correspondence. So, you know, we got it started in 1989, I believe. And, um, it originally was just about, uh, you know, lining up prisoners with prison pen pals and sending books to prisoners. And it really got to, what really inspired us to begin with was, um, you know, there wasn't much going on in Buddhist prison ministry back then. Uh, there was uh, John Dida Lori was doing a little bit in New York. There was some Pure Land ministers doing some prison uh, ministry in California, primarily with Asian American prisoners. Um, but, you know, prisoners were starting to write to Dharma centers and ask for help. And so and I published some articles about what I was doing in prison so far. And so I was getting kind of known in the Dharma, Western Dharma world. And so people started sending letters to me uh, thinking I know what to do with it. And I couldn't correspond with other federal prisoners, but I could correspond. At least I got away with it. They didn't stop me. I never asked permission, but I could correspond with uh, prisoners in state prisons and county jails. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I would go. Uh, I worked in the education department, had access to a copy machine, and I'd take a magazine like, you know, Yoga Journal or Shamala Sun, and I'd go copy some articles and, you know, write up a meditation instruction and put that in an envelope and mail it to a prisoner. And being a prisoner myself, I knew how happy they'd be when they get this, because when you go to mail call, you're happy if you even get junk mail, mail call, right? And uh, so, you know, every time I was filling one of these envelopes, I just felt all this joy. And I remember Joseph Campbell saying, you know, follow your bliss. Right. And I was I was feeling all this bliss, you know, uh, filling envelopes. So I thought, OK, filling envelopes, that's going to be my my vocation. But I pretty quickly realized this was much bigger than anything I could just do on my own for my prison cell. So then we started Prison Dharma Network and it just it just gradually grew from there. And we focused on. You know, just build, eventually I had a friend uh, that worked that was uh, then vice president with Shambhala Publications, Dan Barrett, and he kind of took it over. The first person kind of burned out. He took it over and was he, he had volunteers there working in Shambhala Publications. And of course, they had a lot of books that came back that they could mail to prisoners. So, you know, from for the rest of my time inside, we were um, it was mostly a book ministry and prison pen pal ministry for the most part. But we also started networking and developing a network of other prison dharma, prison mindfulness organizations that kind of started. But it really went into full swing after I got out. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there's so much to talk about and there's so much juice uh, with your stories on the inside. But since you've been out since 1999, you know, just this incredible life of service. And I, I'd like us to transition now, particularly around this summit. and. Um, the interest uh, I think our audience is going to have around um, the work that both is going into prison for for the incarcerated, uh, those who go in and have to work with the administrative side to make that happen, and then also the work with the staff who are who are you know running the, the show in there. Mm -hmm. So as we as we as we come out and and now you're out, what happens? You sort of drop into <laughs> You drop into a different country than you left and you kind of had to hit the ground running. Yeah. Well, I got out in 1999 and I feel incredibly grateful. I came out, you know, to tremendous support 
Uh, I released to, uh, to Boulder, Colorado. You know, by, by this time, I was also studying with, uh, not only was I still very much dedicated to my Tibetan Buddhist tradition and lineage, uh, and uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, who had died in 1987, his son, uh, Sakya Mipa had come into the prison to, to give me various empowerments so I could continue my practice, as had another Tibetan teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche. But I'd also started studying with permission from my Tibetan teacher. I'd, I'd started studying with Roshi Bernie Glassman, so I'd gotten very involved in the Zen Peacemakers. And I was originally going to release to Yonkers, New York, and get involved in the Grayson Project, but then Bernie moved, and... Uh, and that wasn't happening. He moved to the West Coast. Uh, Yonkers, I mean, Grayson was still happening, but he moved. So I ended up releasing a boulder, which I where I'd been before prison. And that's where we took Prison Dharma Network. And, uh, you know, it was a large Buddhist community there. And I knew a lot of people. So I got out and had a lot of support. Uh, you know, that's when uh, Bita Pyers, our executive director, now got involved right off the bat. And she was tremendously supportive. Um, and... Uh, but, you know, I worked really hard at 14 years I was in. I knew I was going to be almost 50 years old when I got out. Uh, if I survived my time, I was going to be broke. I was going to have a, a serious criminal record. And, you know, I'd have to work really hard to prepare myself. And, you know, I've had nothing but opportunity ever since I got out. Amazingly, I was invited that first year to present at the American Psychiatric Association National Conference uh, on the hospice work, you know, and that was like to be... To come out, I don't think people realize when you come out of prison you're, or you're in prison, it's like you're at the lowest, lowest societal rung, right? You don't, you have a number, you don't even have a name, right? You're really just considered a non-human. And then to get out and be presenting at a, a national conference like that, it was, wow, what a shift. And so I'm very grateful for the opportunities I've had ever since I got out. And, you know, with Vita Pyros and others, we got Prison Dharma Network going on the outside, started building this national network, but also got involved there in, in delivering work locally and, and uh, you know, started going into the county jail in Boulder. And, and we had a, a juvenile program at a place called Lookout Mountain, where Vita and others, uh, where the Path of Freedom program was developed. And, uh, you know, I started traveling when I could and, you know, going into prisons around the country and around the world. So, you know, in the last I don't know how many, where are we, 22, 23 years I've been out. I've, I've literally been into prisons all around the world. And uh, uh, so that's, it's been very gratifying to be able to go in and do that work and, and support men and women who are in prison, who are all really, to, to this day, everyone feels who's inside feels like my brother and sister, literally. And I'm always very grateful to be able to go in and offer something. Uh, and I'm very grateful. For, for like the last 12 years or so, we've had the opportunity to do a lot of work with correctional officers, probation pull officers, as well as other public safety professionals, sheriffs, deputies, some some police, community police, even border patrol. Uh, you've been very involved in that work, John, with me, and we developed this mindfulness-based wellness and resiliency training, uh, which is about, you know, a lot of people don't realize that correctional officers who work uh, more than 20 years in secure facilities have a life expectancy of about 58, 59 years. That's two decades less than the general population. And they're dying of all the chronic stress-related ailments, uh, suicidality, you know, they're, because they, their lives, they're, they're, they have this extreme exposure to insufficiently managed stress, which becomes chronic stress, as well as both primary and secondary trauma. And, and so, you know, they're, they're dealing with all, all kinds of chronic stress-related ailments, as well as unhealthy coping, coping mechanisms and often obesity and, and various forms of uh, substance abuse. And uh, there's, a, there's a very disproportionate number of suicides. 
And so fortunately, some of the facilities, some of the systems started reaching out and we were able to start working first in Rhode Island and then in Oregon. And now we're working in different places around the country and in Canada. And uh, we, we're just bringing them the mindfulness-based skills to take better care of themselves and to work in a way that isn't damaging to them. And we're not, we're not training them anything about how they're going to work with prisons, but we know that a mindful CO who feels better about themselves and their life and who's healthier and who's practicing self-regulation skills and mindfulness is going to be very different with the prisoners or the incarcerated persons that they are that are in their charge, right? And uh, so, you know, it's very gratifying to kind of be able to work from both sides of the of the system, so to speak. And, and we've done a lot of work with probation and parole. We work with some judges, with some public defenders, some prosecutors. So it feels like, I mean, it's a huge system, but at least we are touching it from all these different angles as we continue to to train people to go into the prisons and and support the programs for incarcerated citizens. So, you know, it's it's felt very gratifying to be able to to work at that level and to see how you know how people um, you know just soak this up when when you give people simple skills to for self regulation because before that you know their nervous system is being regulated by the world around them and you know we're kind of victims of our own childhood conditioning and whatever circumstances we're in. But by by training people in these simple self-regulation tools and giving them that context of choice and personal responsibility that, you know, our destiny is really, uh, you know, there may be all kinds of causes and conditions that, that got us to where we are, uh, including our own choices. But where we're going to go is really up to our choices. And so, uh, you know, that context is really appreciated, I find, by both incarcerated citizens and by the public safety professionals that combine with the skills to actually begin to regulate your own nervous system develop more mindfulness and awareness, develop more self-compassion, more self-empathy, and so on. So it's very gratifying to see this work take off and to see it, you know, being delivered by so many people around. I mean, we're really excited about this summit because we're able to bring forth a really diverse group of people from many traditions, both Dharma-based or faith-based and secular, that are, that are bringing this work into the criminal justice system and the public safety world. Well, there's two things that, that I'd like to um, to get into with you in these last few minutes. And the first one, um, the first one is going to be about the work that you've done internationally. What have you seen? Uh, I mean, I've been in prisons in the States. I've been in prisons in Canada and, and they, they're, they're not the same. Those systems are not the same, but they look similar, you know. But yeah, you've, been are, some pretty, you've been in some pretty gnarly prisons, right? You've, I don't know all the prisons you've been, but I know you've been into some down in South America or Central America that are pretty tough, I think, in Eastern Europe or in, in Europe. So I'm just w- wondering if you could talk about the similarities, uh, you know, what is it like to live and wake up in, yeah, in, yeah. in a prison? And then also, you know, in terms of those criminal justice systems that you're kind of getting a, a look at. Yeah. Well, you know, there's more similar than different, but there are a lot of differences. And uh, uh, in general, uh, well, I was in a federal system. So federal prisons in the U.S., they're, they're pretty well run, pretty well maintained for the most part, although they can still be an absolute nightmare and full of violence and, and so forth. Uh, state prisons, it's, it's kind of a mix. Um, and, uh, you know, in Europe, a lot of the prisons, unless you get up into Scandinavia, where, you know, it's well known that the, at least in part, they have a more enlightened criminal justice process and correctional system, places like Norway and the others. Well, in a lot of places in Europe, the prisons are just really old. 
I mean, I, I, I've done programs at the, at the main prison jail in Paris, and it's like a dungeon. I mean, literally. And I remember they brought it when they were bringing the meals up. They were they were, you know, had guys carrying these poles, holding these buckets with some kind of slop in the buckets. That was dinner. You know, I mean, you know, and I and I haven't been to any uh, prisons in the UK, but I know there are prisons in the UK that are still like they, it, they've been using them for a thousand years. They're dungeons. Right. So there's that. And uh, South American prisons are pretty rough, too. I've been in uh, prisons in Chile. Um uh, that can be pretty, pretty rough. Um, and so that's kind of true all over the world. I mean, prisons can be, can they're, they're rough every, anywhere. I mean, I don't care how not modern of a prison facility it is. It's, 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 you know, can, it's it mostly is a very dehumanizing place to be unless it's run in the way that, you know, they're doing in Norway and some other places where they're really taking a different perspective and a little bit of that going on in the U S the, in Oregon, they're developing something called the Oregon Way, which is kind of based on a Norwegian model and so so forth. Um, you know, uh, I did a lot of research on um, developing this mindfulness-based wellness and resiliency model for correctional officers. I, I did my doctoral work in that. So I read research on correctional uh, systems and, and the psychology, the health of, of correctional officers, all over the, you know, actual research on it all around the world. And uh, and it's all really similar in terms of what they're dealing with, and and with the results you see in in studies in Europe and Israel and South America, uh, in Asia, in Africa, and in the U.S. and in Canada, the, the research is all pretty similar in terms of the research that's been done around the health of correctional officers and the psychological challenges of correctional officers. Um, but you know, with, with with prisons, they they really differ. Even here in the U.S. I mean, every every facility is really different, even within a state system. You know, uh, facilities develop their own character. Uh, wardens have a lot of power, but even a new warden coming into a prison can really struggle to change the culture. It's like they each develop their own culture and it can be really hard to change. You know, even like a big system like California, where they have a lot of state prisons up and down the state, they're all different and they all have their own culture and it can be very difficult to change it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this last uh, point that, that I'd like you to uh, address is because you've talked about working with judges, you've talked about working with probation, parole, obviously with incarcerated. What is your macro view of possibilities with, uh, with the U.S., specifically the U.S. criminal justice system? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I mean, I've often said that my, my life mission is to rid society of blame and shame just a, a little small project i have <laughs> um you know i i really feel like our western culture is just pervaded with shame and blame and you know part of it i don't mean to demonize any re religious tradition i'm a lover of all the great uh faith traditions and spiritual traditions but you know particular you know kind of uh probably more of the calvinist strain of protestant theology has this notion of the flawed nature of humanity even the depraved nature of humanity and i think that's a really bad misinterpretation of uh of christianity and you know if you really believe that human beings are completely depraved and flawed then you know you create a you know the absence of course of force where dangerous are going to behave really badly well, what kind of society, what kind of institutions do you create? You create blame-based, shame-based institutions, punishment reward systems. And although we have lots of good values in our society and a lot of other values and principles are there, 
still, the underlying it really pervades our society and it certainly pervades our criminal justice system and our prison systems. There's even a, 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 an idea uh, in penology, the philosophy behind corrections, um, called positive shaming, which to me is complete oxymoron. Uh, I get what they're talking about. I've even heard some spiritual figures talk about positive shaming. I think what they mean is just a sense we're kind of embarrassed when we, you know, act in, you know, in a harmful way or something. But, but you know, shame is to me is a completely toxic emotion. Shame is the emotion we experience when, with either the threat or the act of being kicked out of the tribe, kicked out of the family. You know, love is withdrawn, connection is withdrawn. We're unworthy. We're unwanted. That's when we experience shame, right? And it's a very toxic and very powerful emotion. We all experience it as children. And often a lot of our self-structures are, are pervaded with shame because, you know, we, if we have a lot of shame in our early upbringing, you know, because when you get that hit of shame, it's like it's very it's like home. You know, I'm here. And in fact, we even know that that people who are involved in sex offenses, you know, they're actually in some ways seeking shame. And then, of course, what do we do when they're caught? We just shame the heck out of them, right? Which just feeds their acting out, feeds their addictive pattern, because that that hit of shame, it's like a powerful reference point for I'm here. At least I'm here because, you know, we build our self-structures from childhood out of nothing when, you know, it's just groundlessness and impermanence, which no you know, young child can navigate much. That's very hard for us as adults, even with spiritual technologies to navigate that. So, you know, it's just throughout our society and it pervades our criminal justice system. The the antidote to that, the opposite of that, is what has been the dominant view of human nature. If you if you study cross culturally and historically, that of unconditional goodness. You know, there's a so-called blank slate model as well. The human beings are just blank slate. It's whatever they're influenced by. That's another one that's out there historically. But the more dominant one historically has actually been that that human beings, underneath all the noise, underneath all the conditioning, are actually innately good, innately whole. And uh, my first uh, teacher from Primshek called it basic goodness, unconditional, uh, innate, basic goodness. And so that changes everything about how you view humanity, that not only are human beings basically good, human society is innately good, uh, despite all our problems, that the underlying ground is good, that our aspiration to come together and create society uh, comes out of our aspiration to figure out how to, to you know, to work together, to build communities, build society. And, you know, it, it goes awry, it gets corrupted, but still the underlying ground is innately good. And so if you see that, you can involve all kinds of different structures, right? And so if you can imagine, um, you know, a criminal justice system, uh, a restorative justice system, a transformative justice system that's grounded in the view of innate goodness, and then how would you work with helping people turn their lives around if you're not viewing them as, as thugs and, and flawed human beings or subhuman beings, uh, but rather you're seeing them as fellow beings with innate goodness who, because of 99.9% of the time, because of early childhood trauma, their lives have gone awry and they've gotten in trouble and, uh, and they don't have the knowledge or the skills to self-regulate. And so, um, you know, a very different view. So I guess my blue sky vision is that by, you know, that by bringing mindfulness, uh, whether we're bringing it in through the Dharma doors, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, Buddhism, Hinduism, Sufism, you know, all the different programs are genuine or even contemplative Christianity. Any of the, any of the traditions have a kind of gem, genuine contemplative inner work, which we all of which we support and always support through Prison Dharma Network. Um, so whether we're bringing it in that way or whether we're bringing it in as secular programs, but, you know, even secular mindfulness, John Kabat-Zinn has made it very clear. Secular doesn't mean not sacred, not spiritual. 
right? And it, it still has, it's based on the same notion of innate goodness, innate human goodness, right? And so my, my hope is that by getting mindfulness, uh, whether faith-based or secular, into our criminal justice system, into our prisons, into training for correctional officers, into the courts, into, the, into that whole system, that eventually that system will change and begin to shift to one that's less based on a negative view of humanity and on blame and shame, and one rather that's based on the view of the innate goodness of human beings, of human nature, of human society, and one that's uh, not focused on blame and shame. And it's, it's not coercive, but it's realizing what do we need to do to help people heal and help transform their lives? And, and you know, there's a lot of great programs going on. There's a lot of examples of how that works, right? And we just got to scale it. But to scale it, society's got to change as well to support that. They have to start, you know, we have to start seeing ourselves differently in society. Uh, even before we can see our incarcer fellow incarcerated citizens differently, we have to see ourselves differently, right? If we're kind of, you know, shaming and blaming and, and coercing ourselves into staying within some narrow range of acceptable human behavior, societal behavior, you know, we're, we're in that same problem. We're in our own prison. So somehow, you know, we have to transform how we see ourselves and how we see human society so we can actually change our view of, of our fellow citizens who end up in the system or even before they end up in the system to start really taking care of people so they don't end up in the system. You know, we got we the craziness that happened with the drug war and the prison industrial complex was we took all the resources away from the front end that would keep people out of prison from prenatal care onward and put it all at, at the end of the system, just warehousing human beings for profit. Now, fortunately, the brace got hit on that with the recession or the great recession of 2008. The states ran out of money and, you know, the kind of prison building boom was over, at least in the states. But, you know, and so there's a lot of openness to change, but it certainly hasn't completely transformed yet at all. But there are signs that I think we're getting we're getting more progressive. And and I think uh, I think we are on a path to, uh, you know, there obviously there's a lot of decriminalization going on with different things and. You know, but it's it's a major movement that involves not just our criminal justice system, but our entire society. And uh, so that's kind of my blue sky vision and hope for uh, for for this world, that our work and everybody doing this work is going to keep seeding that context of innate goodness uh, into our society in lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, thank you. I, th I think, you know, we're, we're, I'm also hearing from you and I've heard from you and other uh, venues that this is very much about personal healing, that this work simply of being engaged in mindfulness practice can be self-healing. And, and you're talking very much about that in all these different arenas. And it sounds like you're talking about societal healing as well on a grander scale. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, uh, I don't want to get too divergent here, but my, my, my friend and, uh, a uh, colleague, Thomas Hubel, does his collective trauma summits, right? You know, a lot of what we're dealing with in the world, all around the world, with the violence and the, the wars and the uh, the refugee crises and, and all the different forms of abuse that continue on is really just a recycling of this collective trauma that, that gets frozen and we don't deal with it, right? So, you know, there there really is an entire global process of transformation that needs to happen. And, you know, we're talking about creating a global healing community, that has this understanding about trauma and, and, you know, we all need to heal and we need to heal collectively and we need to support everyone 
uh, in healing individually and in healing collectively. And that includes everybody, it includes all of our incarcerated citizens, but also includes all the people working in a system because they're all traumatized as well. Right. That's what I know. You know that very clearly working in it, you know, that we go in and, and we see that a lot of correctional facilities, you have the the, the incarcerated uh, folks and then you have the, the, the correctional staff and they're basically in a cycle of re-traumatizing each other. And both often come from traumatic backgrounds. I mean, people are kind of attracted into prison work, I think, because of that. And then, you know, they kind of demonize each other and, and you know, they just keep up this cycle of re-traumatization going and it really has to get turned around. And, you know, the Norway model is a great model for beginning that and what they're trying to do with the Oregon way in Oregon. But it takes a really concerted effort. But I do see signs of it happening all around. And, I, and I'm very hopeful. I'm much more hopeful now than I was, let's say, 10 years ago. I mean, for many years, even for the first 15 years I got out of prison, uh, you know, it felt like the work that Bita and I and so many people are doing around around the country in prison to and prison mindfulness work was like we're trying to push this really heavy boulder up a really steep hill at any moment it's going to roll back over and crush us. But I don't know about. I don't know, seven, 10 years ago, losing track now, it just seemed like things started to shift and it almost feels like, you know, like the world's starting to cooperate a little bit with our effort. Right. That's very encouraging. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much on that up note. I think I think we'll wrap it up and uh, just appreciate so much your time here with us. And of course, all, all of your work and uh, co-founding this summit so that we can all be inspired and re-inspired. Uh, if people would like to learn more about your work and engage more with you, Fleet, how can they do that? Well, you know, that really is the vision for this summit is to get us all re-inspired. Not that, not that people lost inspiration, but, you know, the pandemic really shut down uh, the world of prison dharma, prison mindfulness. In a lot of ways, I mean, a lot of us have figured out ways to still get the dharma and meditation and program in, but it really put the dampers on it. And so we hope that this summit will really re-engage everyone and we can get the whole prison dharma, prison mindfulness movement, prison yoga movement just flourishing again post-pandemic. Uh, if people want to learn about our obviously at prison mindfulness, it's prisonmindfulness.org. Uh, our Teacher training work is engagemindfulness.org. Our, our work with correctional officers and other public safety professionals is mindfulpublicsafety.org. And if people want to learn more about my work, it's just fleetmall.com. All right, Fleet. Well, be well, stay strong, keep doing all that great work, and uh, I hope to see you again soon. Well, thank you, John. Thank you for the work you do. You're a colleague and work with correctional officers. And I know you go into the Men's Central Jail and, and lead the Path of Freedom program there and minister one-on-one -on -one to prisoners there. For, so thank you very much for the work you've been doing for a long time. Yeah, always a pleasure. Please take good care. You too. Bye, bye now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about PMI and our programs, please visit prisonmindfulness.org. You can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.